Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to the new episode of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. And I'm your host, Olga Breininger. For each episode, we choose an important book in the field of Russian and Eurasian Studies, and we interview its author. Today, we are going to be talking with Douglas Rogers, the author of The Depths of Russia, Oil, Power and Culture After Socialism, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2015. Douglas Rogers is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at Yale University. His research interests include political and economic anthropology, and particularly the anthropology of natural resources. He has been doing anthropological research in Russia since 1994, collaborated with Moscow State University as well as with Perm State University, and in fact, it is precisely the city of Perm and its post-Soviet history that we are going to be discussing today. So welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, Douglas, and we are very glad to have you talk today. How are you doing? I'm just fine. Thank you for having me, Olga. So traditionally, the first question we usually ask our speakers is about background. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. So I grew up in New Jersey, in the United States, and grew up really in the sort of end of the Cold War period. In the late 80s, I was in high school, and uh, that was really my start into um, Russian language and Russian culture and Russian history. Uh, I started taking Russian in high school, actually. It was offered in my high school in the late 1980s, um, and by the time I was off to college, I went to Middlebury College. Um, I continued. That was a time very different than now when, you know, there were 600 students in the class and 60 of them were in first year Russian. So like 10% of the entering class was interested in Russian language and culture. Things have changed up till uh, the present day. But but that's where I started way back then, sort of um, as the Cold War was ending and Russia was a was a new and interesting place and a new and interesting language to think about. So do you think there has been a lot of difference in terms of how to study Russia and approaches to studying uh, Russian and Eurasian region between the Cold War? And- I think so. And, and you know, the, the kind of trajectory that my own career and interest in Russia has taken, I mean, not only mine, but, but mine in particular, is sort of diagnostic of that. I mean, I was in the, you know, m- m- not first, but, you know, first and a half generation of uh, anthropologists who worked in Russia where all of a sudden after the um, after the end of the Soviet Union, you could do field work. And there were a group of people who did this in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And then my main field work was sort of in the late, for my dissertation anyway, was in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And that, uh, along with, you know, increasing archival access was a major change in how people studied, um, studied the former Soviet Union, studied Russia and, um, it was very exciting back in the in the 90s to think about doing field work in Russia and to think about uh, the possibilities of actually living in rural Russia, as I did for a long time, um, and doing interview-based 
work. That was something, you know, in comparison, at least to the Cold War years, when I remember reading my first books about Russia in the late 80s, uh, it was something very different. I know that you have been doing field work in Russia for over 20 years now. And I was actually interested what brought your attention to Perm rather than Moscow. And why did you decide to focus your book on Perm? That's right. I mean, I've actually, the first time I was in, in the Perm region was in 1994. So I was still in college at that point. Uh, it was, um, I was interested in, uh, still back in college, I was, I was planning to do my senior thesis about Russia and I was interested in religion and I was taking a lot of anthropology courses and I had decided I was going to do my senior thesis on old believers. And while I was uh, on the semester abroad at Moscow State, In uh, the spring of 1994, I got to know some Russian scholars um, at Moscow State in the history department who studied old believers, and they invited me on a summer expedition to go study old believers in the Perm region. And um, I said, great, let's go. So I spent a month traveling around uh, rural areas of the Perm region, visiting old believer communities with some wonderful Russian scholars who are still great friends today. Um And so that was my first trip to the Perm region in 1994, and that was really the beginning of my first book project, which took me through my dissertation and through my first book, which was an ethnography of a, a village, basically, in the Perm region, an old believer village that was also a, you know, a uh, pre-revolutionary peasant town, and then a collective and state farm, and then a sort of post-Soviet struggling agricultural enterprise. And it was a study of uh, ethics and morality over the course of three centuries in this town, as it was informed by um, religion on the one hand, old belief, and sort of agricultural transformations over the years on the other hand. So that was really the, you know, almost 15 years in one way or another with some breaks spent thinking about this part of the Perm region. And I sort of stuck with it in the oil book. Oh, I see. So, well, moving to the discussion of your book now, we know that Perm has for a long time really been an industrial hub. And then in your book, it comes out as, you know, the new cultural center or almost having the ambition to become the new European cultural capital. Um, so how did this change happen and what was the role of oil in it? Right. So I guess your, your question sort of encompasses the beginning and the end of the book. Um, and that's really the set of transformations I trace from the Perm region being uh, largely an industrial region in the, um, in the Soviet period, part of this large uh, Urals industrial heartland to um, the sort of 2009-2012 period, which is the last part I treat in the book, um, where all of a sudden... Um, Uh, under Governor Andrei Cherkunov, uh, the Perm region's main goal is to become a European cultural capital. So we can talk about the various pieces of how we got from one to the other. But but the first thing I would say to begin with your question is that, you know, we don't think of the Perm region much as an oil region. We think of it as an industrial region, and so too do people there in the Soviet period. But it was actually the, um, the part of the Soviet second Baku. This was the home of... Um, of Soviet oil production in the 50s, 60s, in particular until all the Siberian discoveries of the 60s and 70s. Um, oil was first discovered in Perm in 1929 and was a 
fairly important industry all the way through. But uh, the key point here that I make in the first part of the book where I'm talking about the Soviet period is that oil simply did not occupy the same place in socialist and Soviet political economy that it does in capitalist political economies. Um, so oil is central to the Soviet economy. This we know. It's an economy based on tractors and planes and things that you need oil products for. Uh, but because of the way that socialism worked, oil did not really become a central industry in terms of prestige um, in the way that it did in the capitalist West in boom towns or petro states. Um, and the reason for this is that uh, it's fairly simple and that the, in, the, in the socialist economy, oil money, the kind of money that you could um, produce by selling oil, um, never made it back to the production sites. So the Soviet Union um, may have sold abroad a lot of oil. Uh, and sold domestically a lot of oil, but you didn't have a capitalist economy where this translates into money and that money reappears back at the site of production um, or accumulates anywhere in particular that's associated with the oil industry. So uh, you don't have Soviet oil boom towns the way we had recently in the United States in North Dakota. You don't have um, uh, petrostates, at least in the same way you get them in the West, where you get this uh, assertively uh, wealthy oil elite that has a lot of influence over the state. Um, uh, all of the money that went to, uh, that that was accumulated through oil sales, um, international oil sales, sort of went into the Soviet central budget, and that was important. But uh, you don't see those oil booms at the regional level. So part of what I'm doing in that first part of the book is saying, yes, it's right that uh, this was an industrial region and oil was not a very prestigious commodity. And I want to mark that difference uh, with the uh, oil in the capitalist world, both in the 20th century and after. Oh, so that's uh, actually a great segue to our next question. And I was wondering if you could, you know, um, continue and tell us a little bit more about the central argument and the structure of your book. So it covers almost three decades of post-Soviet period. And maybe you could tell us more about the process of co-production of state and energy corporates in the current region. So the structure of the book is is uh, comes in three parts really, and the, and the first um, talks about the um, movement from socialist to post-socialist oil. So beginning with that moment that I just talked about, the distinctiveness of the socialist oil complex, and then talks about the 1990s and the, the ways in which um, that socialist oil complex was transformed in the, uh, in the whole set of post-Soviet transformations. Uh, and then I spend some time on the 2000s where I talk about um, the sort of um, boom years, the rise of uh, regional oil corporations and their connections with the state. Um, and then I talk about this, uh, this topic that you mentioned in the last three chapters, uh, the way in which oil was translated in the Perm region, particularly into cultural projects. Um, so that's the overall outline. I mean, to pick up where I was, where I left off a little bit with this, the end of the socialist oil complex, um, of course, all of that I had talked about, about the sort of declining um, or, or the relative lack of prestige of the oil industry in the socialist period begins to change in the 1990s. And I spend um, a couple chapters talking about how that happened at the regional level. And this seems to me to be a, a really important part of the story of oil in the post-Soviet period that's not typically told. Um, the sort of standard account that we hear about is this giant battle over control of production fields. It's waged in 
Moscow and um, between the Kremlin and oligarchs and with the sort of role of international oil companies uh, shifting but on the edges. Uh, but I tell a very different story here, and it's about the central role of regional corporations and regional exchange and regional state agencies in shaping the 1990s. Um, and one of the things that appears as I talk about this is that it was really not – to begin with, at least, a story of privatization that drove post-socialist changes in the Perm region's oil com uh, complex. It was not about who got to privatize which company when. Um, and the reason for that is that even before privatization happened, even before there were vouchers and shares and auctions and all these elements that we're used to hearing about, um, the circulation of oil products through the region, who got you know, gasoline from the refinery and how it moved uh, and what it was exchanged for became absolutely central to the functioning of the Perm region on an everyday basis. This is already late 80s sort of perestroika crisis into the very early 1990s end of the Soviet Union. Massive shortages, um, inflation, devaluation. All of this is felt very deeply because everybody needs oil products uh, in one way or another to – drive their products to market or um, to operate tractors or combines. And as it turned out in the Perm region, those businesses and those individuals and those agencies of the state that were able to um, move that oil, those oil products, were crucial to the way everybody got along. Uh, and this often happened through barter. It happened through demonetized exchange. Um, we trade you oil, um, oil products at the time of sowing your crops for um, uh, products at the time of harvest. Uh, so, so the regional state agencies are very big into this particular kind of deal where they provide oil products to um, uh, to privatizing state or collective farms, and then they take the um, the wheat or the grain or the crops and then redistribute it. Um, so. In thousands and millions of little transactions, oil becomes quite central to getting by at all in the early 1990s. And the people and small companies and agencies of the state who began to control those chains of, uh, I call it petro barter, um, were the seeds of the relationship between the oil company and the state as it grew up in the um, in the 2000s, and they are much more central to what actually happened and how events folded than anything that was going on in Moscow um, and to any sort of privatization deals. As a matter of fact, um, the main company in this main oil company in this region is now Luke Oil, but it uh, was not originally. This was not originally part of Luke Oil's holdings. And in fact, Luke Oil's bid to take over the Perm regional industry was uh, substantially contested and changed and in many ways pushed back and transformed into regional interests by this coalition of uh, businessmen and uh, state functionaries who were specialists in trading oil in a very everyday way. So this is a story in the 1990s about the regional influence of oil um, as against and even as a more important thing uh, than sort of central, uh, central stories about Russia um, and stories about privatization that we're most used to. So that takes us through, I guess, the first major part of the book, which is from, uh, I call it from socialist to post-socialist oil, where um, eventually you end up with uh, Luke Oil running oil production, refining distribution in this region. Um, but to a very significant extent, you end up with 
those interests not subordinate to either Moscow in a state sense or Moscow in a Luke oil sense, but to regional coalitions and to regional oil um, figures. That sounds fascinating and, uh, you know, really interesting. And what was happening later um, in, in the boom years and then with, um, with the coming of Chirkinov? Right. So, so that sort of takes us up to, 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 the, to the late 1990s, um, um, 1998 financial crisis, um, and then uh, the coming of power of, uh, of, uh, in the presidency of Vladimir Putin and sort of recentralization to some extent, um, and at that point also rising oil prices. So you get the consolidation of an oil industry by the late 1990s, early 2000s, and then oil prices kick in. Um, um, and money starts flowing into the Perm region. Um, so at this point, I'm talking, it's less a story of sort of disintegration and um, a story of reintegration of corporations, of the building of a, a regional state at the um, um, in the Perm region, how state agencies were put together, how they were funded. Uh, and the tight relationship to the oil industry that emerged as suddenly there is money in the budget. Uh, there is a push from above, um, from Putin's Kremlin to uh, have to end the sort of wild 1990s, have companies reinvest at home to centralize some state control. Um, and so that's really the story of these of these two chapters. And and they come out, come directly out of the story of provisioning oil and the and the um, sort of alliances between the oil industry and oil businessmen and state agents in the uh, 1990s. Many of those people are still in the same place in the 2000s as more money is coming in, as there are more demands on the company, as there's um, uh, to reinvest. And there are um, uh, increasing demands for state agents, agencies at all levels to sort of take some control and establish a state after the wild 1990s. And so I trace here over the course of the, um, say, you know, around 2000 to 2008, um, the very tight connection between Luke Oil uh, as a set of structures in the oil industry in the Perm region, a private industry, and all kinds of state agencies. And the fulcrum for these um, interactions is what in the Perm region became known as the social and cultural projects movement. Um, uh, this was an innovative way of funding the social and cultural sphere um, by which sort of Russian state bureaucrats and, and, um, uh, and others would, would call everything from healthcare to um, cultural production to uh, education various various domains in which um, the Russian state and other states are sort of active in social life. And these are the kinds of things that, that citizens look for from the state um, and that state agents struggle to provide, right? Funding for education, schools, funding for health care, um, funding for uh, particularly in, in a post-Soviet context culture. And, but the problem is in the, in the early 2000s in the Perm region, there's not much money for this, um, at least at the grand level that many um, former Soviet citizens expected. And it is Luke Oil Perm uh, and its various affiliates and subsidiaries that begin to provide in the early 2000s, late 1990s, especially early 2000s, in a huge way then by, the, by, by 2004, 2006, uh, funding for social and cultural projects. Often social and cultural projects that are run by the state, by the regional state agency um, uh, of education or healthcare care or um, uh, or whatever. 
but the money often comes from Luke Oil Pair. Um, and so I chart this very um, careful relationship, this sort of dance that emerges between the oil company and the regional state around these projects um, and some and some of the effects uh, that come out of this. So, for instance, uh, Luke Oil was interested only in funding projects that took place in areas where it had its own operations, which is about half of the districts of the Perm region. So you end up with, by the end of the 2000s, the end of these massive projects um, funded by the oil company to a significant extent, uh, a big spatial divide in where culture is happening, where the best educational or healthcare or folklore ensemble um, uh, groups are located, and they're all located in oil producing regions. They're located on top of oil uh, deposits because uh, Luke Oil is, is spending money through the state on these particular um, regions. And they're doing this for a number of reasons, uh, a number of reasons uh, that I talk about. But but one of the effects is this, this sort of striking um, spatialization of culture in the 2000s, where you where you start to get um, uh, very clear differentiation between oil uh, oil districts and non oil districts around cultural development um, or lack thereof. Now, that's sort of what it looks like from the state side. They're um, in need of and very much wanting to expand state. Um, coverage for and support for the social sphere and the cultural sphere. And they look to Luke Oil to do this and they make various compromises from Luke Oil's side. Um, they are themselves very interested in social and cultural projects, uh, projects for a somewhat different reason, although it intersects. Uh, and that is that this is a time of massive uh, critique of the oil industry from all sides. Um, Still in um, uh, the memories of the sort of deprivation of the 1990s are very clear to most people. Most people in the Perm region, particularly in rural areas, are not doing very well. And uh, it's clear that the oil industry is doing very well. And there's massive critique of the inequalities that are resulting of the oligarchs. Um, and you get similar critiques from above, from the um, Putin administration and from the Kremlin saying, um, you know, oligarchs and big businesses need to invest in their territories enough of the sort of hiding the money in Cyprus and Switzerland. Um, so Luke Oil responds by, uh, Luke Oil Perm responds by, um, looking a bit at what Western oil companies and other, other natural resource companies are doing. And, um, that's engaging in what they call corporate social responsibility. Uh, again, borrowing a term from the West of investing money in local, ecological programs, local cultural, local educational, local healthcare initiatives um, as a way of showcasing their um, concern for and interest in uh, the populations that they're um, that host them. So they're very interested in uh, Luke Oil is in improving its own image of um, of not being quite as beset by critiques from local populations or from local politicians. Um, and what's at stake for Luke Oil is really access to uh, you know smooth access. They would say to oil producing districts. They need 
roads. They need pipelines. They need land deals. They need all kinds of things in a very local, spatialized way. Um, and a high level of discontent with the company can get in the way of that. So they're very interested in improving their image and doing so in ways that are visible, that have a, um, uh, a visible impact on the district and, um, and help people um, make some money or get by in difficult times. And the first project that they picked uh, for doing this was um, cultural production, sponsoring folklore ensembles, local artisans, um, things that, that might allow people in these uh, depressed agricultural struggling regions to make some money by, um, by doing things that they might do at home, um, artisan production and then selling it. Uh, and Luke Oil very, very quickly gets into the tourism industry, trying to get people to come to these regions and buy folk crafts and, and things like this. So, so this is the sort of from the company perspective, their view of how they're investing in local regions is through corporate social responsibility. And it sort of links up with the state agency's efforts to also provide services for these regions. So you get what I call a very tightly intertwined state corporate field of interactions around oil and social and cultural development, where the company and the state are really um, become indistinct from each other, in particularly in the oil producing districts of the Perm region, and particularly on this field of, uh, of culture and cultural production. So you position Lukoil's activity, um, say, within the range of um, global turn to corporate social responsibility. But also, at some point in your book, you say that Luke Oil, more than any other energy corporation in Russia, has been the su successor to the Soviet oil and gas industry practices. So do you think um, this Soviet heritage or institutional memory may have affected their choice of um, investing into culture uh, compared to, say, Shell in Nigeria, who prefer to invest into infrastructure? Yeah. Great question. Right. So, so this actually, so the, your question nicely captures two things that I'm trying to do in the book. Um, the first one is to say that, um, well, as you began, that Luke Oil is, um, is part of a global turn towards corporate social responsibility. And, and part of what I'm wanting to say here is that, uh, you know, the frequent story we hear about uh, Russian oil corporations and Russian capitalism is one of sort of oil and culture gone off the rails and crony capitalism and look how corrupt it is and look how awful it is and and this giant mess. But but actually, in comparative perspective, I don't see that um, that the difference between um, uh, Luke Oil's corporate social responsibility in um, uh, in the Perm region and um, you know, Chevron's or Shell's elsewhere is uh, is so different. They're part of what I think of as sort of a global family of interactions between states and corporations on the field of um, corporate social responsibility. And I think Russia is actually quite closely tied up with um, the ways that other um, uh, corporate social responsibility projects play out elsewhere in the world. So I'm wanting to say that, you know, Russia is not actually so different on this, um, 
uh, on this score. And that, uh, in many ways, the story of capitalism in the last 20 years or so is about the increasing significance of corporations in social and cultural lives. It looks different in different parts of the world, but Russia is not some outlier here. Russia is very much a part of these global trends. And to get to the second part of your question, one of the reasons I think it is, is because there is what you call this institutional memory or um, this background expectation from the Soviet period that part of what oil companies, a part of what any company does is take care of its people, right? So you always had um, Soviet company towns where um, education or healthcare or culture were the domain of the enterprise, um, where um, whether it was a collective farm uh, interested in cattle or an oil company or a, um, you know, a car manufacturer, uh, whatever it was, the companies, um, had a big role in the lives of people there that ebbed a bit in the 1990s, uh, during the era of privatization and all these, um, uh, Russian companies sort of getting rid of the social sphere, privatizing as they privatize, they get rid of the fact that they owned the local club and the museum and, you know, sponsored the, the healthcare, um, uh, you know, the hospital or whatever. But that sort of, sort of reemerges in the 2000s, where in this era of, of regional level state formation, where companies are again, particularly in the oil industry in the Perm region, um, uh, interested in, um, uh, now it's in the name of corporate social responsibility, but interested in um, many domains of the lives of their workers and employees and families of their employees and others who live in the territories where they have influence. And um, I think you see that um, or I trace it in particular ways in the in the people who are involved in. Um, in these grant competitions and in the ways that social and cultural project funding is distributed. And in a very practical, direct, on the ground, traceable way, it's the same people um, who were doing this kind of work in the Soviet period. So um, librarians, um, museum workers, uh, these are these are folks who in the 1990s didn't have a lot to do. There wasn't a lot of money for culture. Um, the sort of connection between culture and ideology was sort of weakened in question anyway. Um, uh, but all of a sudden, these same folks who are still many of them in the same positions or at least um, um, occupying similar places in um uh, in the state administrations of rural areas of the Perm region, they are the ones writing the grants to Luke Oil saying we need we have this project that we want to do um, in education. Um, help us with this or we have a folklore ensemble or we're going to have this kind of a summer program for kids to educate them about the history of the town. Um, please fund this. So there is that institutional memory and it's also a personal memory um, that uh, uh, um, of former party members, former culture workers, Workers, uh, suddenly sort of reinserted into important roles in the 2000s um, by the sudden availability of money from Luke Oil and interest from state agencies in new kinds of programming. So it's a very particular history, as you point out in your question, this is the Soviet past. It's not the same past as you get in Nigeria or Indonesia or um, other places where corporate social responsibility is going on. But it leads us into what I think is a global family of state corporate connections in the energy culture nexus that I want this book to sort of illuminate from a particular Soviet and socialist past. That is extremely interesting. Uh, well, if you allow me to return to something we have already briefly mentioned, 
Um, I wanted to say that something I found particularly fascinating in the depths of Russia is your strong intention to challenge the main narrative of, say, Putin, oil, Soviet past. So how do you think your work conceptually challenges this narrative? Right. I mean, this is a, I mean, this is a book about an oil region, and it tells the story of Soviet and post-Soviet oil from the perspective of the Perm region rather than from the perspective of the Soviet Union and Russia. So it's a different unit of analysis. And I think that shift in perspective allows us to tell an entirely different story by taking a much more closer account of how oil actually moves um, and how um, very local, very regional um, businesses and state agencies all interact with each other to create these larger scale effects and um, larger scale outcomes. And I think that that ends up with a very taking a regional perspective and tracing the way the oil moves, where it's refined, where the actual cultural project is taking place, is in the oil region or not. Those kinds of questions that I ended up pursuing here. Um, they end up telling a very different story than uh, several of the stories that are most commonly told about oil in Russia and elsewhere. Um, in particular, because, you know, for one thing, I don't focus a lot on money. Typically, um, um, accounts of oil, whether they're sort of popular accounts or scholarly accounts, focus less on oil itself than on oil money. So, you know, what share of the Russian budget is oil revenues or how rich are the richest oligarchs or what is the um, income from uh, foreign exports or domestic sales or what is the oil price? All of those things are about money. But when you start from a regional perspective and you start saying, okay, where is the oil? How does it move? How do these particular qualities of oil, of oil as a substance, as a material, move through a region? What are the symbolic associations? What are the ways in which uh, people transact that oil actually in concrete ways? What, who did you trade oil with and how, when? Um, all of those kinds of questions enable me to tell a quite different story than one that just says oil becomes lots of money and deforms the state or um, uh, oil expenditures uh, look this way in Russia and uh, a different way elsewhere in the world. So the region level perspective enables me to challenge that oil and money story. And as I've already outlined a little bit, I think it enables me to challenge um, uh, the story of the Putin era as one of uh, um, intense and sort of unidirectional centralization. Yes, I think there's more claimed central control in Russia um, these days than there was in the 1990s. But um, in all of these periods that I talk about, regional coalitions, regional actors, regional um, processes are just as important as what's going on at the center. And I think this is, um, if I had a main lesson that I wanted uh, readers of the book to take away from this about Putin era Russia, even if, you know, even the name Putin era Russia puts Putin at the, at the forefront of everything. And I'm hesitant to do that. I don't think that that's the best way to tell the story. I think there's always these kinds of much more complicated ways of thinking about um, how the center interacts with regions or other kinds of units. It's not necessarily just a region, not necessarily just a corporation. Um, but there's always more complicated and illuminating stories to tell than um, the kinds of ones we increasingly see these days that focus so much on the Kremlin or so much or even on the person of Putin or so much on Moscow. I just don't think um, that that's what's going on most of the time. Um, it's not that that kind of... Um, uh, of dynamic is irrelevant, but it's never the full story.
Oh, I have two more follow-up questions for you on this. So one is on returns and the second is on oil and money. So maybe let's start with oil and money. What I wanted to ask you is that I thought that something which can be traced in your book is the implicit criticism of social sciences which very narrowly focus on transformation of oil into money. And you um, invite for a more full spectrum approach to the material life of oil. So what do you think are the perspectives of such approach in general and in particular when it comes to Russian studies? Right. So once you set aside the oil and money nexus, or at least make it, you know, take it out of the um, as of the main thing, all kinds of other transactions, exchanges, possibilities um, open up. So I guess I'll just talk about two other kinds of transformations or exchanges. One is one I've already mentioned, um, which is the um, which is petro barter, the exchange of oil for goods or services um, um, or other oil products or tractors or whatever uh, crops uh, rather than direct exchanges for money. So exchanges that don't go through the sort of universal equivalent of money. Um, but uh, go through other kinds of transactions. And, and that became actually quite crucial in the Perm region because um, uh, of the way that not running the exchange through money allowed people to create very potent symbolic connections between oil and the region. So not abstract money, but our oil, oil from our from beneath the Perm region, um, refined at our refinery, um, moved through the, the region in exchange for everything from apples to timber to crops to consumer goods to sugar. Um, and it enabled people to get by. And the people who were running those exchanges were able to create their reputations and earn a matter, uh, a measure of prestige because they were able to say, look, we are enabling um, everybody from small farmers to mid-sized corporations to the entire regional state administration to get by because we're circulating our oil um, um, and our oil products for the good of everybody. It was that very close material connection between our oil and regional identity that was the beginnings of sort of post-Soviet identity in the Perm region. Um, and it was explicitly in contrast to all the sort of um, wild money of pyramid schemes and devaluation and circulating dollars and all the confusion about rubles and dollars and and everything um, that was so alienating and and uncertain uncertainty producing for post-Soviet citizens in the 1990s. That was all there. And on the other hand was our oil, this very material, concrete set of exchanges of uh, petro barter. Uh, so there's one thing that you get um, if you move aside from um, from just money and you think about the very concrete um, ways in which oil moves um, and what it's exchanged for and the symbolic associations of it. Another thing that you get, um, and this is a, a bit later, not in the 1990s, but in the 2000s, um, is an ability to see the way that oil and culture began to rub up against each other. And the symbolic associations of oil and culture become really central to these um, social and cultural products, uh, projects, which um, I, this is part of where I get the title of my book from, The Depths of Russia. Um, 
Luke Wells sponsorship of historical festivals and folklore ensembles and the sort of recovery of a pre-Soviet identity and ethnic identities, Russian and non-Russian in the region is really a story of, about um, the uh, searching for an authentic past, a uh, deep past. Uh, and it's not a coincidence, uh, I argue in the book, that um, this gets sort of um, – uh, very closely tied to the to the depths of region of the region in a geological sense, where Luke Oil becomes the sponsors. Luke Oil, the, the, who's a specialist in the geological depths of the region, in this oil um, and in this drilling and in all this production that's suddenly becoming monetarily and materially central to the region, also becomes the specialist through this sponsorship and through their very close association with sponsorship of historical revival um, and cultural revival and folklore and archaeology and all of these other other kinds of things, which are also about the depths. Um, so I don't think you'd see that if you just focused on the money either, right? So Luke Oil gives a grant to this region to fund a historical um, festival. If you stop at the money, then you're just thinking about a, a transaction. And, you know, maybe you would do analysis, you know, how much of Luke Oil's budget is in corporate social responsibility and how much is it not. But if you set aside the money or see that as only part of what's going on, then you can see the whole symbolic associations of oil as a substance that has particular qualities like its depth beneath the region and other things that can be said to have depth, right? Like culture or history and these associations as they're formed in these festivals and as people begin to inhabit them um, become uh, become very clear. And I think although Luke Oil was not a sponsor of the um, of uh, like Chirkunov's uh, cultural capital campaign, they, kept some distance from that. Uh, this association between um, oil and culture was very potent in the 2000s. And I think it was part of the reason that this cultural capital campaign got underway is that culture was something that uh, the Perm region uh, was beginning to specialize in and um, thought they could make a name out of. So those are just two of, of probably several ways in the book in, in which I say, okay, Let's just not say it's all about oil and money. Let's actually trace how these things move and what kinds of associations um, and transformations grow out of them and how those things are caught up in political and economic and social cultural transformations. Well, something you emphasize um, in your book and something which also came up in our conversation is that uh, that you think it is important to focus on regional study processes rather than just uh, doing the study of, of center and federal level study. So um, do you think that would be equally true for, um, say, the study of the Soviet period or Imperial Russia? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think the yes is my answer. I mean, I'm a big I'm a big fan of um of subnational of, of, of studies that take units below units of analysis below the sort of standard nation state that informs so much scholarship, say in political science or, or, or things like that. So I'm a big fan of, uh, of, of other units of analysis. They don't have to necessarily be regions. Um, you know, my first book was really about a, um, village, but it wasn't just about the village. It was about how, um, a focus on a particular place, um, and a particular conjuncture um, and studying that conjuncture in a lot of detail enables us to say things about much bigger processes, including those at the nation state, including those beyond. So, you know, whether it's a village in my first book or a region in the second book, the idea is not that um, either place is a sort of part for whole representative sample of a bigger thing like 
Russia or the Soviet Union or I don't know, the global oil industry, because it's not. It's got its own particularities. It's got its own historical background. There's all sorts of contingencies. But the idea is by focusing on a smaller unit of analysis, um, you can see in a lot more detail how various large-scale forces configure and um, uh, influence each other and build on each other in all sorts of um, interesting contingent ways. And once you trace those contingencies and, and think about how they work together, you can come up with larger scale theories. You can work back to these larger kinds of theories of how things work that other people can then test elsewhere or try elsewhere. Um, or you can even, I think, make some larger claims such as the one I was making about, you know, um, the ways in which corporate social responsibility in Russia is part of the same family as corporate social responsibility in, um, you know, Nigeria or Ecuador or um, Indonesia. And that, I hope, changes some perspectives, doesn't just cut Russia out of the picture there. So uh, I think there's great promise for studies of all sorts of units of analysis. Um, and I would encourage those who think that um, a regional study or a village study is only about that region or about that village to think again, because precisely the point is that you can get to these larger scale issues through the study of the ways in which they configure at a smaller scale. Well, as far as I understand, um, the study of resources has generally privileged the nation state over the local and the regional. So has this uh, made any conceptual difficulties for your research of the Prim region? Well, yes and no. I mean, it actually, I mean, for one thing, that's true. It, it did, that is the, the privileged space of these studies um, in the Prim region and elsewhere. Um, but once I started looking, there was actually a great deal of scholarship, um, particularly Russian scholarship, particularly by regional studies scholars and um, all kinds of interesting stuff done about the regional level in Perm. So once you started, once I started looking for it, um, I spent an enormous amount of time in libraries looking at, you know, studies by Perm regional scholars and amateur historians and folks who, who were just terrific on their understanding of the regional history of the oil industry. Um, so there's a lot there. Um, once I stopped looking in like for uh, scholarly studies by, you know, big name academics in centers and outside of Russia and things like this. So there's actually quite a lot there um, once you start looking. Um, but I guess the I guess it actually left a pretty big opportunity for me in that this is, you know, there's not a lot of studies of oil in Russia that take this kind of a perspective. Um, and so I think um, and, you know, it's now, you know, there's a fairly big anthropology of oil and natural resources these days, and a lot of it does take a regional or a local perspective. So outside of Russia, there's a pretty big uh, scholarship for me to work with and bounce off of. Um, inside of Russia, not quite so much yet. Um, so one striking thing about your book was um, your uh, saying that one of the most consistent observations you have uh, had over your more than 20 years in fieldwork is Russia is the preoccupation of um of the locals, of the local scholars with um, the space and the idea of uh, Perm on, on the map of Russia. So how do you think uh, what has been happening with Perm over the like, past two um, decades has really changed the perception of Perm uh, as a city in Russia? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and here I'm a little bit, you know, I've spent so much time in the Perm region that I, I find it a little hard to compare on this score with other uh, with other Russian regions, particularly on this this sort of um, 
uh, I wouldn't call it an obsession, but a, but a, but a, a very uh, detailed and present interest in maps and space and how space is changing and where does Perm lie um, on the map of the Urals or, or on the map of Russia. Um, I would guess that there's something like that going on in lots of different places. Um, but, um, but in the Perm region, it's become, um, uh, you know, particularly with Oleg Cherkinov's cultural capital campaign, it's become, uh, or it, it not so much now since that, um, uh, that area is over really. Um, uh, but, it's become a particular focus of, of sort of um, this effort of region branding, of, um, of making a distinctive name for the Perm region in this effort to um, attract tourism dollars, to attract federal funding. Like, what is the brand of the Perm region, of, of, of the city of Perm or of other cities within the Perm region uh, or even of little um, – you know, every little town, it seemed, had a project to discover its own brand and market that brand. Um, and so I think that's been one of the striking things to watch over the years is the emergence of um, all sets of sort of nested claims about uh, the distinctiveness of a particular place and a particular time and how those things can be um, uh, um worked into development plans for the region or for the city or, or for a town, um, the distinctiveness of a particular place and its products. And, and Luke Oil has been absolutely central to this, uh, not always in the um, marketing of oil, but in the marketing of other kinds of uh, things as well, cultural products or particular sort of heritage sites or uh, refurbished churches or, um, uh, or things like this. So uh, I think that, trend towards region branding, um, perhaps particularly on display in Perm with the sort of European cultural capital project. But I think it's a much wider concern in Russia as regions and localities compete for federal dollars, um, you know, putting oneself on the map, recognizing oneself, um, finding ways for the federal center or others, uh, whether they're tourists or bureaucrats or whoever to recognize you um, and your place is, is probably a pretty important thing in a lot of different places. Well, I think we have already taken a lot of your time, Douglas. So one question, uh, maybe to finish off our show, is about your current work. So what research are you doing now and what can we be expecting from you in the coming times? Well, in the short term, I'm working on a few smaller projects that also have to do with some oil and energy things in Russia, um, some things about um, uh, oil and the oil industry in visual culture, in um, in um, documentaries and films and, um, and other places, um, again, in Russia as compared to elsewhere in the world. Um, uh, and probably a few other things in that vein um, are the more short-term things. I'm uh, also putting together a longer, bigger um, project that I that may end up being another book, but I'm not far enough along on that yet that I'm uh, happy talking about it. So that one was going to have to wait for our next interview, I'm afraid. Uh, well, uh, we would love to wait for it. And, uh, you know, it was really great to have you on the show today. So thank you a lot for this fascinating conversation. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Arnold. So this was my conversation with Professor Douglas Rogers about his book, The Deaths of Russia, Oil Powering Culture After Socialism. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and please join us soon for more episodes of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, which will feature Jonathan Platt, 
Laura Alson-Osterman, Tanya Zaharchenko, and Molly Brunson. Until then, this was your host, Olga Breininger. Take care, and keep listening to new books in Russian and Eurasian studies.